Hello, fellow Kentuckians and other friends, and welcome to a new edition of my old Kentucky podcast. My name is Robert Connie, and joining me again, as always, is Jasmine Smith. Jasmine, how are you today? I'm doing well, Robert. How are you? I'm doing well. I missed you last week. I had a so- yeah. I didn't join you as always last week. No, no. I had a, I had a solo podcast. I recorded the whole thing and realized I didn't have it like connected to my microphone, so it sounds terrible. No. <laughs> so that was rough. Uh, it was rough to do that. Uh, I just kind of let it let it go. You could hear me okay, but yeah, you know, doing it by yourself, it's lonely. It's it is. You're, you're putting together. You're, you're the transitions are all you. Like you know, uh, it's like the only thing I ever could possibly say I respect Rush Limbaugh for because he does like three hours by himself. Like that's pretty <laughs> impressive. Uh, anyways, that we have a great show this week. Uh, Shamika Parrish-Wright, who is a candidate for Louisville mayor, she is going to be the interview at the back half of the show. Um, as I mentioned last week, we're going to be interviewing a lot of the candidates for Louisville mayor in the next little bit here. Uh, the Lexington mayoral uh, race got another candidate this week, so we're going to talk. Uh, that's a quick hit, but we're going to do some quick hits at the end. But before we get to that, we have several big stories. The infrastructure deal that passed the U.S. Congress. That was big, big news. The Kentucky stands to gain quite a bit from it, so we're going to go over all of that. Jasmine's going to talk to us about two big stories. The first is Charles Booker's New Deal, the Kentucky New Deal, uh, which he unveiled last weekend or over the weekend. Jasmine's going to tell us a little bit about what that was, and she's going to talk a little bit about uh, the the juvenile jail. Uh, The juvenile jail closed two years ago in Louisville. The the Courier-Journal wrote a big, long article about it, and uh, Jasmine knows a lot about this, so she's going to be talking a little bit about that. And then I'm going to tell us a little bit about COVID. So without any further ado... Jasmine, you ready to talk about infrastructure? Yes. Yeah, the infrastructure week finally came. Uh, the United States Congress passed the second large spending bill of the Biden administration last week. The House uh, pushing an infrastructure bill across the finish line. The law includes a trillion dollars in new spending on what some are calling hard infrastructure. And, and Kentucky is actually going to get quite a bit of that. Hard infrastructure being, you know, like things that you can touch. I guess Uh, the fact sheet from the White House was broken down by state. And so we do know what the bill says Kentucky stands to gain. So the biggest chunk is four point six billion dollars for federal aid highway apportioned program. So there's like the highway system where the federal government gives grants to the state level. And then we build roads and highways and stuff like that. And there's other things that actually come out of the highway system that are not necessarily just highways. But but that's four point six billion dollars in like kind of like the normalish way. We also are going to get $438 million for bridge replacement and repairs over five years. Um, We are going to talk a lot about a big, big bridge in Kentucky, but there's a lot of bridges in Kentucky. Anytime you go over anything, it requires a bridge and somebody has to inspect that. We have to build those. We have to repair those. A lot of money to do repairs and replacement of those. $647 $647 million over five years for water infrastructure. You know, of course, Kentucky got a lot of money in the first spending bill that we made the decision to spend on water infrastructure, but this is even more money for water infrastructure. So so that's kind of wild to me. You know, at this point, when it comes to water infrastructure in Kentucky, there has been a lot of stories over the years that have made a ton of, you know, a ton of just like bad news. I mean, Martin County's water system has been something that people bring up all the time uh, and have for a decade or something. You know, nowadays we have the money to solve all of these problems. So if they remain unsolved, it's the government's fault for not solving them and not, you know, the federal government's fault for not funding the solutions to the problem. We have the money to solve our water problem. So hopefully we're able to do that. After that, $304 million over five years for airports. 
So, you know, we've got two really big airports in Kentucky and uh, the one that's in Louisville. And then, of course, the one that is that serves Cincinnati is, of course, actually in Covington. So it's on the Kentucky side of the river. It's a Kentucky airport. Uh, but then we also have Bluegrass Airport in Lexington. We have Bowman Field in Louisville. That's a smaller airport. And we also have a lot of other smaller airports that need a lot of attention. Um, you know, there's a really small airport out where Kelsey's family is from that was built and then kind of promptly abandoned. And so, like, it was it used to serve a lot of Ashland Oil executives. I, th- I guess it's still in service, but, you know, I don't know exactly what happens over there. So, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot more airports than you're probably thinking about, um, but we do have those big ones, and they're going to get a lot of money for service. $391 million for improving public transportation. We don't really have any details about what anything means yet, but that's pretty exciting. $391 million to improve public transportation, whether it's in the rural space or the urban space, is something that's really, I mean, there's a lot of dreams that could come true with that. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of nightmares that might come true as well if they're if it's spent in a bad way. Uh, but that that is, at the beginning of this process, something that's really cool to think about. Then we get $69 million for electric vehicle charging capacity over five years. You know, that's really cool. I think they're building this out all over the country. And, you know, with a lot of the bigger economic development happening with batteries for electric vehicles in Kentucky, um, that big Ford plant that's going in, and then also Toyota building onto their plant in Georgetown. Uh, And electric vehicle charging infrastructure is great. That means more people are going to buy electric vehicles and will be able to to charge them in appropriate places. So, So that's good news. And then something I think is really great, Uh, a minimum of $100 million for broadband. So under the law, uh, nearly one and a half million people in in Kentucky, in addition to, uh, you know, the the actual hardwired infrastructure for broadband that we're funding here, under the law, we have 1.5 million people that are eligible for a subsidy to actually help them access broadband. And the subsidy is at $30 a month. So, you know, I do think it's one thing to like bring broadband to a lot of, you know, smaller communities or, or you know, places that are a little bit more remote. But it's, it's another thing to get the people who actually live in those places access to the internet. Uh, and this, this bill, this law allows for that. It, it makes sure that people have at least some ability to access the internet at a low price. So that's, that's really good to hear. Uh, it's a mean tested program, which, you know, I, I wish it were more universal, but, uh, but that's still really good. So that is what it is there. And then lastly, uh, $19 million over five years to fight wildfires and $18 million to fight cyber attacks, which are things that are not like happening all the time in Kentucky right now, but have, uh, you know, had an increasing presence, a scarily increasing presence. We had a couple of big wildfires just a few years ago. And of course, cyber attacks have been in the news everywhere. Um, so it's good to get out in front of those. Hopefully we can, you know, spend this money wisely um, so that the coming wildfire season in Kentucky with climate change is a little more muted than the one that's happening in California every year. So Jasmine, at the end of the day, that is $1.9 billion in things that are not highways. And then when you include the highway money into it, that is $6.5 billion for Kentucky. That is a lot. You think that's a lot? Yeah, that's a lot of money. I mean, on that list, is there anything that you are like the most excited for? I think that there are places in Kentucky that like really need improvements to bridges and highways and things like that. Like there are part of parts of Eastern Kentucky that are really hard to get to. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think we could just make that so much better. So I think that the 
the highway money for and bridge repair money and improving public transportation like those are huge yeah i mean everything in this whole thing is huge it, it all is yeah. yeah but but that is like i mean just like the idea that the government funds something to make it easier for us to live our lives like that's just like something that's not a common occurrence these days and it's really cool yeah. to see it happen so yeah that that's very good um, so that's a lot of money, like we mentioned. That's what the White House fact sheet said. But the folks in Kentucky that had a hand in crafting this legislation, bo- they, they had things to say about the bill and what they would like to have happen with it. So so the first one, John Yarmuth, Kentucky's lone Democrat in the House. He was the only House member from Kentucky to support the package. Of course, the five other Republicans voted no on it. Um, he also had a hand in creating it as the chair of the Budget Committee. Um, and, and insiders like to call it the, this the BIF. Uh, did you hear this called the, the BIF at all? Yes. Okay. That stands for Bipartisan Infrastructure Framework. Uh, and it really was indeed bipartisan. Joining John Yarmuth was Mitch McConnell, who voted for the Senate uh, version of the bill that was eventually passed, along with several other GOP members in the Senate. I think there were like there were like 15 members of the House and I think like 30 Republicans in the Senate that ended up voting for it. Um, and, and that was because Mitch McConnell was supportive of it and whipped the Republican uh, you know, minority to support the bill. And, and McConnell was, in fact, out front touting what this bill would accomplish for Kentucky. And, and, you know, a lot of people have already started complaining about Republicans saying like, oh, of course you're out there um, taking credit, but you didn't vote for it. But I mean, I think it's appropriate for Mitch McConnell to go out there and talk about this because he did a lot of work to deliver a significant number of Republican votes to get this done. So, you know, it doesn't happen every day, but thank you, Mitch McConnell. Uh, <laughs> good good stuff here. Um, and McConnell's office did mention that uh, some things that he wanted the money to go for. He, he mentioned that the money from this bill would be used to complete the Kentucky portion of the Appalachian De- Development Highway System. There are that That's like a big project that's part of the Appalachian Regional Commission um, that is, works to, to connect kind of more remote areas in the Appalachian Mountains to the existing highway system. And, and there's two spots in Kentucky where we haven't built the last roads. And the roads that we still need to build connect Jenkins and Elkhorn. And those are in southeastern Kentucky. I think Jenkins is in, yikes, what is the, it's like on the Virginia border. Uh, I don't remember. Maybe Maybe not county. Maybe I don't know. Uh, I don't I know. I think Jenkins is in Letcher County. Letcher, Letcher County. All right, very good. Whitesburg's neighbor. So uh, yes, Jenkins and Elkhorn are are going to be connected uh, to to the interstate corridors, making shipping and travel a lot easier to those communities down there in southeastern Kentucky. In addition, McConnell's office said the bill would designate the Louis B. Nunn Expressway as a spur of I-65, uh, which is nice. You have to like make the road nice enough to be a spur. And the Louis B. Nunn, I think, is the Cumberland Parkway. I think that comes off of 65 and goes towards 75, like south of Louisville. Um, yeah, I think that's what it is. Uh, and anyways, that becoming a spur of uh, an interstate highway it also it improves the road, but it also qualifies you for future federal money. So, I mean, it's a nice way to not only like make the road nicer, but ensure that it remains nice in the future uh, because it then qualifies for for inter- for uh, federal money as well. So, Mitch McConnell, John Yarmuth, but then also Andy Bashir. Andy Bashir was quick to mention. He was very quick to mention the Brent Spence Bridge as a major project that he was going to take on with the this bill passing. So the issue of tolling on the bridge, <laughs> that's a hotly contested uh, Northern Kentucky issue for a very long time. Uh-huh. 
Uh, you know, we we have people from Northern Kentucky on the show from time to time. Uh, we love our our friends from Northern Kentucky, and this is always an issue they want to they want to address. I mean, it doesn't really matter if you're a mayor up there, or you're a state representative, or you're running for federal office. Like the Brent Spence Bridge is a big deal for the folks who uh, who live up there in Northern Kentucky. So. Uh, in addition to the $4.6 billion in highway money that Kentucky is already receiving, the the bill as it exists also has like larger projects that you can put in a grant for. And Jasmine, you may be, remember when we had the first tranche of ARP money, the American Recovery Act funds, that went towards like individual counties all got a certain amount of money and then they had like grants that individual counties could a- a- apply for that the state mm-hmm. would then... You remember that whole process? Yeah, this is like this exact same process, but like one step up where all these states get all of this money. But there's also extra money that states can apply for to for like specific projects. And Andy Bashir has said that he he will apply for one of those grants for the Brent Spence Bridge in particular. And that he hoped that receiving one of the grants would mean that desperately needed improvement to the bridge would be able to be completed without tolls, uh, which is, you know, that's the dream. Yeah, I'm jealous. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and you know another thing is we might be able to take some of this money and remove the tolls from the bridge in in Louisville. That would be nice as well. We will mm-hmm. we will see. But getting back to the Brent Spence Bridge, the bridge, in, in case you hadn't heard, uh, it's been deemed functionally obsolete, which sounds really bad, but it's actually not that bad. Uh, it, it's bad. It is bad, but you can we still go across it. I go across it quite a bit, uh, and and yeah, but but it but it does mean it needs a lot of work. The bridge currently carries 150,000 vehicles a day. That's crazy. That's double what it's designed to do. Um, so, you know, obviously the bridge, very old, you know, not doing the, the the job it was designed to do. And with this new money, a, a real solution to the travel between Cincinnati and Northern Kentucky is actually finally in sight. So that's great news for Northern Kentucky. Hopefully, Andy Bashir and um, our, our, our uh, you know, our representation in Washington is able to push this across the finish line. Uh, don't know if Thomas Massey will be involved. That will be an interesting one to see for sure. Jasmine, when the two senators from Georgia won their seats back in 2020, giving Democrats a united majority in the House, Senate, and in the White House, this is honestly on the high end of what I hoped would be accomplished. Between the ARP funds, which were more than a trillion dollars, and this bipartisan infrastructure deal that's another trillion dollars in spending that's really going to make people's lives better, um, that is what I thought would – that was like my wildest dreams, just being honest with you. And it's done now. And honestly, there's still this third major spending bill in the federal government that's probably going to pass. Um, you know, this was able to get passed because, you know, some of the progressives who'd been holding up the bill because they wanted this bigger project completed. Um, they they said, you, you have our blessing to pass it, but make sure that you pass this other thing. So, I mean, everybody who's involved in it seems to be seems to be ready and willing to get this thing done. Um, so, you know, beyond my wildest imagination. Mm-hmm. So the federal government really stepping up, really doing a great job. So um, that I'm sure you heard about the the uh, the infrastructure bill passing and that's how it will impact Kentucky. Anything else about this you want to say? I don't think so. All right, great. Well, do you want to talk about Charles Booker and the Kentucky New Deal or juvenile jail? Let's talk about the Kentucky New Deal. Talk about another kind of federal All right. thing while we're on the topic. So Charles Booker made his Senate candidacy official last week when filing day 
um, happened on November 3rd, which was also my birthday. Happy birthday. Uh, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> and he unveiled a new campaign um, in Lexington on Saturday, calling it a Kentucky New Deal. He said that his New Deal initiative will focus on transforming Kentucky from the hood to the holler. So he's, you know, still using that phrase, too, and that he'll be prioritizing addressing poverty across the state. He said that regardless of where you come from, we've all been getting screwed and have gotten a bad deal. He called the period that we're in right now the great exploitation, stating that we're at a point where industries have left and communities have been left behind. And, you know, there honestly were not a lot of specifics about the what the plan entails, um, but it seems that it will prioritize quality health care like Medicare for all, alleviating poverty, um, support for public education, increasing teacher pay, protecting teacher pensions, um, and things like that. Those are pretty specific, I guess, right? Well, yeah, I guess he talked about broad issues, but we, I guess we don't have specifics of what the plan yeah. is. I guess alleviating poverty is a little broad. That's true. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Rand Paul's people were, were asked about the Kentucky New Deal and the statement from a Rand Paul spokesperson was, um, our opponent's support for defunding the police won't be popular with everyday Kentuckians. Um, but police funding was not addressed anywhere in the Kentucky New Deal unveiling. So, um, there's, I think it seems like that's the statement there that they give every time they're asked anything about Charles Booker. <laughs> I, I did a media training one time, Jasmine, and and in the media training, there's this exercise we did that was called the three-legged dog. And the entire exercise was like, somebody's going to ask you a question. And all you answer with is, look at that three-legged dog. And they ask like increasingly interesting questions that like ask for interesting people to think about them. And you only, one, you answered, uh, look at the three-legged dog. And that's, I feel like, what Rand Paul's doing here. Uh, you yeah. Know, it doesn't really matter what it's about. It's like defund the police. That's all that they want to talk about. And everything, no matter what it is, no matter how interesting, or, you know, they could ask Rand Paul about, like, anything, and he would just be like, Charles Berger wants to defund the police. And that's what we're in for for the next year. So yeah. get ready. That three-legged dog game doesn't sound fun. It wasn't. It's really hard. <laughs> Talking to the media is really hard. It's staying on messages hard. So hopefully, you know, they, they give up on defund the police. Yeah. Uh, so the new campaign also has hats. Um, they're white hats that say Kentucky New Deal, uh, but they kind of have that same look of the MAGA hat. So yeah. what do you think about that, Robert? I, you know, I, I the, the more that we can put Donald Trump in the rearview mirror... I, I don't think we're going to be able to, but I really wish we were able to, uh, the better. Um, so, you know, not not the biggest fan of the, the MAGA hat derivative nature of the hat. Uh, but you know what? I think people look cool wearing them. And, you know, if somebody gave me one, I'd put it on. So, you know, that's what it is. Yeah. Um, I, I checked today to see if maybe there were any more specifics on Charles Booker's website or anything like that. Um, and there is now like a Kentucky New Deal link on his page, but there isn't really much of any information on there. But there is a comment box where people can share their vision for a Kentucky New Deal. So uh, I guess they're taking suggestions. Um, but I don't know, Robert, what do you think about this new like campaign theme or, or vision that Charles Booker is going with? 
I, I, I like the idea, right? I like the idea that, like, the New Deal is something that's incredibly popular. It doesn't matter. Like, they teach it in history class as, like, a, a good thing, right? Like, no matter mm-hmm. who you are, they're like, oh, the New Deal. That was good. Uh, and, and so I get that, trying to latch onto that and, and use that to your advantage. The fact that it was a Democratic president that passed the New Deal, the, past, the, the fact that it was, you know, progressive legislation that led to the New Deal, like, that, that all makes sense. Like, he's the inheritor of the New Deal, making it about Kentucky. That's something we've talked about quite a bit. I mean, in our uh, border bonanza uh, with Jeff Smith in Missouri, that was, like, his main uh, advice, right? It was, like, make it as much about Kentucky as he possibly can. So that's, you know, he's following up on that. I think, like, for me, my personal criticism of it would be, like, you know, the the policy stuff is a little, like, thin. But at the same mm-hmm. time, I'm, I'm like, why does that really matter? You're a senator. If you're a senator, like, you don't really, especially if you're a freshman senator, you don't really get much say in, like, how the legislation gets written. If you get a say, it's in, like, joining groups of people who impact the, the legislation that other people write. Like, that's the that's the high end of you, your possibility as a young freshman senator is, like, somebody else writes an infrastructure bill, you have other priorities, and you advocate for those, and you get them into the bill. Like, that's what right. you're able to do. So having big, broad plans of your own for, like, like what... Medicare's next thing needs to be okay that's that's fine you can say that but like as a legislator you don't have much of an impact on that so you know at I, while I'm like a little annoyed that there isn't as much specificity as I would like I get it and I also don't think it's necessarily all that important but I do think Charles Booker needs to do a little bit more to elucidate or like speak to what is it that he wants to do to alleviate poverty like what are the programs that exist that other people have ideas for whose plan to alleviate poverty that's already in the government do you mm-hmm. support like that kind of stuff I would like to see more of that um, but that's just me I'm a little weird I know that um, and Charles Booker probably has his finger on the pulse of the Kentucky electorate better than me so that's it what do you what about you Jasmine what did you think that he needs? Well, I kind of feel that same way because so this happened while I was out of town last week and and I came home and got back on Twitter and everything and started seeing things about it. And I was like, I wonder what the Kentucky New Deal is. And then like I researched it to talk about it and I still don't really know exactly what it is. So, So I think that I need more specifics as well. And I also, you know, I also wonder if Charles Booker is going to beat Rand Paul, he does have to get registered Republican voters. And I just wonder if even though the New Deal is, I guess, an overwhelmingly positive thing, I wonder if if that's still the case with Republicans right now, that like this idea of big government I don't know. I don't know if if centering a campaign around the New Deal like is as popular right now as it would have been at some other time. I I, I see what you're saying, Jasmine, but I, I think the answer is yes. I mean, okay. to, to me, I think like whenever I talk to Republicans, especially Kentucky Republicans who have at the beginning of their voting life were voting for Democrats uh, <laughs> and, and switched later, like yeah. they always say like, well, the party of today's Democrats is not the party of my grandfather's Democrats or like my father's Democrats yeah. or, or, or whatever. Um, and, and they're like, you know, the New Deal, they still like 
have a lot of affection for things like the New Deal. That's not the reason they became Republican. Like the 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 support for working people and the support, uh, the economic support for people who are you know impoverished and, and and the things that the New Deal accomplished. That wasn't, I don't think, the reason why Kentucky is a Republican state. I think it has more to do with other issues um, and the urban rural divide and and mm-hmm. cultural liberalism and like all those things that I'm a big fan of. But I think that those are the issues that that kind of the fault lines are about are are, are you know you know going against Democrats. And and trying to recenter something like the New Deal, which I do yeah. think has a lot of popularity with Republicans, is I think a good idea. Yeah, I mean, I think the the type of people that you're describing or are more moderate Republicans, and it, it just feels like there's less and less of those now. Yeah, yeah. The thing is, I don't think once you go beyond moderate Republicans that mm, any of this really matters. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. So I mean, that's the bet. Yeah, that's the bet you have to make is that you can get Mm -hmm. enough of those moderate Republicans and mix them with, you know, the other side of the coin is you also have like urban Democrats now that you didn't have 10, 15, 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. Um, Louisville was a much more competitive space in the state, like, you know, Mitch McConnell won Louisville up until like 2002. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, so you have that in your pocket. Uh, and that's the calculus they have to do. I'm not running that campaign. I don't envy them. Um, but I think, you know, they've made some good decisions and we've told them our thoughts. So yeah, there you go. Jasmine, why don't you tell us about the jail? All right. So in 2019, Metro Council voted to close Louisville's only youth detention, youth detention center. Um, this is something that we talked about on the podcast back when it happened. And, it it was kind of abrupt, so it was part of, um, I guess, was it a budget shortfall? Is that what you'd call it? Yeah, it was Matt Bevin's uh, pension thing, right? Yeah. Where the pension uh, obligations. The pension obligations were going to increase for Louisville, and so Louisville really had to tighten its budget. And so the, the youth detention center was, um, it was going to be part of that, and then it was taken out, and then it ended up closing the youth detention center is what happened. They kept a few emergency beds open at a state facility that's located in the east end of Louisville, um, but they're only a few beds and they're only available on a short-term basis. So, for example, when a child gets arrested and they have court the next morning, um, they might be there overnight and then if they continue to be detained, then they may move them to a facility out of county. Um, So these are are short-term beds, and there's not very many of them. So after the first court date, or if all of those beds are full, children are then moved to other facilities in the state, and all of those facilities are far away. So um, one of the the closer ones is is Warren County, and that's a good hour and a half away from Louisville, or um, they're as far as Breathitt County and Boyd County. I know so, how to get to Boyd County from here. Yeah. 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 Actually, a long way. Actually, I have a family member that worked at that center. There you go. Some some of the problems with this, black youth are overwhelmingly overly represented in juvenile detention. Um, and sending them to far eastern and western Kentucky means even less like culturally competent programming, less therapists, providers, and staff who look like them. Um, it also means removing children further away from their biological unit. 
And even if, you know, they get to stay at some of those short-term beds in the East End, that's still far away from the zip codes where a lot of them live and, and, and family may have transportation issues, even visiting them while they're still in the city of Louisville. Um, but it also makes it harder for attorneys and local providers, mentors, therapists to have access to their clients. So we knew when this happened um, that these were some of the issues that we would face um, because of the closing. There are some things that could be positive about it. Um, advocates like myself would hope that closing a jail would cause authorities to reevaluate detainment. Um, but the problem is that we haven't created any alternatives. This past week, a Courier-Journal article by Tessa Duvall and Darcy Costello is now looking at that decision two years later. And, and some of the things that they talked about in the article, first, LMPD officers have said that they are forced to act as babysitters because they have no safe place for a child to go. What is happening now, because they can't just drop them off at the youth detention center is they may have to sit with them for hours until someone from the court-designated worker's office is able to do an assess a risk assessment and an evaluation. Um, and so officers are sitting with kids for hours at a time, and there are people that have to transport kids to state facilities in other counties. It's kind of bad logistically for a lot of people. <laughs> Um, council members have also expressed fear that we're now unable to intervene before a child commits a serious crime because if there may be less children being assessed for detention, we're not getting to them until they commit the worst thing. Um, that's something that some council members have talked about. Mayor Fisher has proposed using some of the American Recovery Act funds to open a youth transfer processing center so that officers can drop kids off and then get back to work. Um, I and others like Terry Brooks, who's the director of Kentucky Youth Advocates, I don't really see this um, as the right solution. Dropping kids off to like sit in a processing center uh, before being transferred out further in the state doesn't really offer them much in terms of therapy or programming or anything like that. But then I also don't necessarily see just reopening as the right solution either. Reopening could create a, a different type of crisis and result in over-incarceration as a response to the, the violence and homicide number of homicides in Louisville this past year. Um, and that can turn a generation of teenagers into more violent people be, because so many studies um, and I think some of them are even linked in the Courier-Journal article, show that juvenile incarceration can lead to worse outcomes. What I think and what I've seen Keisha Dorsey on Metro Council and Nicole George of Metro Council bring up is, okay, we closed the detention center, but we haven't done anything else. We haven't created any new programs. We haven't created alternatives to a detention center. We haven't examined what a better facility could look like. I don't think that just reopening what we had would be the right move at this point either. We we closed 
we closed it two years ago. And then now the council is like, maybe there were some un- unintended consequences. And to me, it's like, no, we, we knew what they were going to be. <laughs> yeah. It, um, they, they may have been unintended by you, but just because they're unintended doesn't mean they weren't predictable. Right. And so now Metro Council wants to go back and, and look at what's happened since then and examine the effects of the closure. Um, and so that's kind of where we stand now. There have also been a lot of articles and news interviews with like representatives of from law enforcement. I've seen like an officer I know from LMPD give a news interview where he talked about how it's juvenile, like a a small group of juveniles and young people that are doing a majority of the crime in the city. Um, but in that career journal, in that career journal piece this week, it stated that out of 65 suspects in this year's 168 homicides, only six have been juveniles. The way that like law enforcement has been talking about the jail's closure and the effects of it, that's really not what the numbers show. And LMPD and even some Metro Council members have also expressed that like closing the detention center means that all these violent kids are getting let out, um, but the data doesn't show that either. So of the 157 youths that were screened for detention last year, 55% were recommended by the court-designated workers for detention, yet 87% of them were actually detained because of judges overriding the decisions of the caseworkers and social workers with the CDW's office. So 87% of children assessed for detention were detained. Yeah, yeah. Uh, So... And, and I mean, that also just I mean, that speaks to what you were saying all the way back at the beginning of the segment, Jasmine, where you're like, well, maybe not having a, a jail in town means that fewer kids are actually going to get detained, um, which isn't a good outcome for most kids. And it seems like that is not what's happened. They're still detaining 87 percent of the people who get brought in. Yeah. The, so there are less children assessed for detention with the closing of the youth detention center, but. That means that some of the lower risk youth are not being detained, but if they're being assessed for detention, they are still getting detained. Yeah. This is definitely a bit of a crisis because it's really hard on the youth that have been in detention because with COVID, the facilities haven't even had visitation. I mean, we know that being pulled away from a family unit is a traumatic experience in itself. Um, it's hard on attorneys and providers who work with kids. It, it's hard, it is hard on law enforcement and the system as a whole. And so, yeah, well, I think it's closure hasn't been good. I think we need to talk about what are alternatives besides just reopening it? Because when we had it, it wasn't good. Either. It wasn't functioning well either. Yeah, yeah. It, it is an opportunity. Like it's an opportunity to build a better solution than the one we had before. Um, yeah, and we've it, had two years to talk about that. But the and, other thing is, the other thing that's maybe a little frustrating is like, okay, well, maybe the different thing we should do is also a bad solution, right? Like the uh, the transfer yeah. thing. So that's got to be frustrating as well. So yeah, it is. Uh, yeah, it is. It's a big issue, uh, you know, and it's probably an issue that doesn't get talked about enough. The fact that, you know, kids are going to jail and it could also be the fact that like the, the, the way that they interact with the system is what's causing 
more crime because yeah. uh, it's just a it's just such a bad system. And if we if we thought of something better, if we built something better for kids who are in trouble, maybe we would be able to solve a lot more of our other problems as well. So, mm-hmm. yikes! All right, Metro Council, Mayor Fisher, future mayor, future Metro Council, people who are in charge of American Recovery Act funds. Do do a better job on this. So <laughs> let's let's hope let's hope that that happens. And also let's do a better job on COVID. So it has not been a great COVID week. Um, cases have been basically flat. They had been declining before that, but but th- you know uh, things were things were pretty bad on on Tuesday. I actually did not look at all at Wednesday's number. So we're gonna do this live. Uh, it looks like things are getting a little worse. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, we had 19, not good, had, not good. We had nineteen hundred cases today, um, which is another another bad report. So we've had a couple of bad reports in a row. The seven day average uh, cases turned positive yesterday on Tuesday, and it, that means you know, looking at the number, uh, it looks like it will go up again um, uh, today. So you know, that's that's not where you want to be. Uh, it's important to note that that you know, during the midst of the Delta surge. Uh, things were really bad and it was the worst that COVID got in all uh, like in Kentucky. But, but, you know, we could pretty confidently say things are going to go up to this point, two months after it starts, it's going to come start coming back down. And as things started to level off, you know, it was like very predictable. It went the way that we, we thought it would go. However, now we're really starting to enter some uncharted waters, you know, some places like the United Kingdom and Missouri, uh, that had their Delta surge prior to Kentucky's, they have seen their Delta surges decline and then seen a pretty substantial increase in cases. Like the United Kingdom went way down after their Delta surge and then went way back up, like all the way above where they were before. Missouri has a pretty substantial increase uh, from where the, the middle of their, their Delta surge ended. But then other places like India and Arkansas, they just remained basically in a plateau. And India just kept going down until uh, cases went to, to very little, uh, a, a very low number of cases. So I don't know what's going to happen next. Uh, we could go back up. We could remain in the plateau for a little while. Uh, we did plateau at about this point. Uh, when we were coming down originally, we came back down about halfway. We stayed about f- level for like three, four weeks, and then we started going down again. So that could happen to us now, too. There's no way to know. Um, so that's that's kind of where we're at with cases. Right now, as of Tuesday, there were 14 yellow counties and 43 red counties, which is very similar to the previous week, maybe just slightly better. Louisville data and the state's data are kind of departing. A little bit. Louisville's data said that Louisville was in the red zone again um, with a, a large number of cases. I think like 1,700 cases in Louisville is what the city reported. But the state's data sh- still shows Louisville at about 21 cases per 100,000, which is not in the red zone. So it didn't get any better in Louisville, but whether or not it got worse kind of depends on whether you want to listen to the city of Louisville's data or the state of Kentucky's data. Um, Lexington did continue to go down. Um, as of today, they are, um, yeah, they're at like 17. So, so they've, they've continued to decrease. So, so good for Lexington deaths have also plateaued or they actually might be increasing again. Uh, deaths are a lagging indicator, but each death is a tragedy. So, you know, it's hard to say what the future holds based on our death numbers. Um, but, but it does seem like the, the, the decline that we were in may have paused a little bit. Uh, Kentucky crossed over 10,000 total deaths from COVID-19 last week. 
that's a lot of tragedy. Um, we've talked a lot about COVID since the disease emerged in Kentucky and the governor has also continued to talk about it quite a bit. Um, I, you know, there's some criticism that he talks too much about it, but I mean, 10,000 people died. It's a really serious issue. It makes sense that we keep talking about it. Um, hospitalizations, hospitalizations continue to decrease. We were down to about 808 people per day in the hospital for COVID. And, and last week, that number was actually above 900. The rate of decrease is decreasing though. And, and just like cases, the number of hospitalizations might be beginning to plateau, but it probably has a few more weeks of decrease before it actually gets into a plateau. Vaccinations actually had a pretty decent week. Uh, I'm not sure if it was a blip or, or you know, more being more people being added back into the total who were inappropriately removed when they did that big decrease or the big correction a couple weeks ago. Um, but you know, on Tuesday, the update for vaccinations was 13,000 cases. So there's always one day a week that's the, the the weekend update where you get the number like the number from the weekend and that 13,000 was one of those like weekend updates not the Saturday night live sketch but like it was just a, an update for the weekend. Uh so you know the number of vaccines uh we haven't had a weekend update with more than 10,000 people in it since October the 14th. So that's good. That it's about a month ago that we had a number that that was that large. Um, and it actually did cause the seven-day vaccine average to jump above 2,500. So, so that's good. So vaccines actually had a halfway decent week. So at the end of the day, things are really tenuous right now with respect to COVID. Plateaus are scary uh, because, you know, they might mean it increases right around the corner. But, you know, like I mentioned, we were plateaued for a while in the spring and then kept going down. So that's still possible. So whatever you're doing to uh, deal with COVID, whether it is you know, continue to wear a mask, get your booster shot, like do whatever you need to do um, to stay safe out there and, and to stop the spread of COVID the best that you are able to. So, oof, uh, you traveled, Jasmine. How is traveling in, in the midst of a pandemic? Was it any worse or better than it was uh, in the summer? I mean, I hadn't traveled since the beginning of the pandemic. So oh. this was my first time. Wow. Uh, I felt a little bit better because I've had a booster. My husband's had a booster. Um, we wore our masks. But, yeah, it's still a little bit scary and nerve-wracking for sure. Yeah. One thing I didn't put in the notes that um, I did want to at least mention was the Pfizer treatment for COVID, um, which is a pill that gets taken. And there was a, a you know a pretty significant trial that said it was like 89% reduction in hospitalization um, if taken within three days of diagnosis. That's a real big game changer if it actually works in that way. It actually uses the same technology mm -hmm. that a lot of like HIV medications utilize. Um, so, you know, honestly, like if this ends the pandemic, we're all standing on the backs of like the people who advocated for this method of treatment during the AIDS pandemic, uh, a couple of decades ago, which, you know, is a, is a crazy tragic moment as well. Um, but yeah, the, that, the, if that works, like they say it does, you know, people, even though they've been a little reticent to get vaccinated, some people have, nobody's been reticent to get, to get a treatment. And that that could really spell the end of the pandemic. Like, I really think that the 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 pills, the treatment pills, in addition to the vaccines, that's really the end of it for me, um, I think, if it actually works the way they say it, it does. So that's on the future, potentially, uh, probably won't be till, you know, beginning of next year or so uh, once that actually gets approved. And, and that is what it is. 
All right, uh, that's it for COVID. We do have a couple quick hits before we get to our interview with Shamika Parrish, right? So first of all, the LMPD union's contract will be voted on tomorrow. That is uh, November the 11th. That's a Thursday in Louisville's Metro Council. Activists are pushing for it to be rejected, while the union hopes it will be ratified. The contract includes a number of reforms, such as you know encouraging officers to purchase homes in low-income neighborhoods, and it in- incentivizes volunteer work. But uh, activists say those are inadequate and have asked for stricter measures, such as like captain's notes becoming part of the personnel file for officers. And also, this contract only covers captains and lieutenants. The rank-and-file officers actually... Uh, they, they rejected their, uh, their negotiated contract. Um, so that is actually already back in the, um, negotiating phase. And that is where activists are hoping the captain and Lieutenant union contract ends after the vote in Metro council next week, or uh, excuse me, tomorrow. Um, did I do a good job there with Jasmine? Was that a pretty good, uh, explanation of what's going on with that? Yes. All right. Awesome. And lastly, Linda Gordon has picked up an opponent in a Lexington mayoral race. David Kloiber, David Kloiber, I think is how you say his name. He is a first term council member and he filed to run for mayor. So I do want to do some more about the Lexington mayoral race now that it's actually a race. Um, But yeah, that's always an exciting time. Always pretty competitive race. Um, And so that is coming up as well. So that's something that's happened uh, in addition. All right. Well, that's it for this part. Let's get to our interview with Shamika Parrish-Wright. Shamika Parrish-Wright is a candidate for Louisville mayor running in the Democratic primary. This is her second election after running for JCPS school board in 2019. Ms. Parrish-Wright is also the community advocacy and partnership manager at the Bail Project Louisville and was a leader during the Breonna Taylor protest during much of 2020. This is her third time appearing on my old Kentucky podcast. She's been on here before to talk to us about the bail project and about the protests in previous shows. So Shamika Parrish-Wright, welcome back to my old Kentucky podcast. Thank you for having me. And I love your voices. And now I get to see your faces. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for having me. <laughs> well, we are, we are very glad to have you on again. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us. And we did. We want to talk to you about your run for mayor. So. You know, you were the first candidate to declare your intent to run. Um, and, you know, of course, people have been talking about it ever since then. And the main, you know, criticism that we hear about your candidacy is about your experience. So, you know, what do you say to the people who think you aren't ready to lead a city with a budget of $615 million and a workforce of almost 6,500 people? I've been saying that women and, you know, women are mayors in every part of their life and and work at home in a church in their communities. So I I feel like most women and and men, but most women most definitely are natural born leaders. Well, it's good for people to know that no, none of the candidates have been mayor of the city of Louisville Metro period. And so there's a learning curve that all of the candidates would have to face in that seat. There's a lot of things that happen that takes, it means that the people who are around them, their team, the administration, that's who helped make the mayor better and shine better. I, my experience, even though I've helped manage 
over $9 million with the Bell Project, getting over 3,000 people out across Jefferson County and 17 other counties in Kentucky. All of my work, even before the Bell Project, has been connected to improving the lives of Louisvillians. So whether I work for the Kentuckians for the Commonwealth, Kentucky Jobs with Justice, Kentucky Alliance, it's all been about making dealing with human rights and human rights issues, bringing the, the missing voices to the table where they haven't been heard. And so I see this as an as doing that in a bigger level, coming from behind the curtain of helping get people elected to actually being a candidate for the people a people's mayor we haven't had in over 30 years. And I don't want to come off perfect because I'm not perfect, but I have lived the lives of many little billions. I know what it's like to build a business, to start an organization, to help other people do the same, to deal with the human resources, to navigate the over 6,000 employees that Louisville Metro has. And those employees are counting on me too. They're writing me now. They're asking me, even police officers and saying, telling me about the injustices they're dealing with. They know that they have a voice and they have an advocate in me as well. And I am a natural born leader with, but without that, I've already been leading in many teams for positive change in our city and in our state. And so managing is something that I'm going to always develop, but I think nobody is above professional and personal development. So I'm willing to do that and have an accountability team that will not just be a transition team, but accountability team that represents all the communities in, in Louisville who will be with me throughout my administration to hold me accountable to everything that I ran on. I'm a different kind of Democrat. I'm a serious candidate and I'm ready to lead this city forward. Very good. I mean, it sounds like you've also heard that question a lot of time because that was a very good answer. Uh, you know, uh, looking at all the people who've been mayor of Louisville, at least in the recent past, I'm sure it goes back really far. And then also a lot of the people who are running in, in the race this time, you know, they, they have very similar kinds of experiences, you know, people who wear ties to work, uh, that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, you have a lot of different kinds of life experiences. And, and I would really like to hear you reflect a little bit about how like your specific life influences might have prepared you for the job of mayor. Thank you for that. And I've been researching mayorship and it really was set up for rich white businessmen to usher in and be the contracts and, and the connections and the relationships. Rich white businessmen with little requirements. Only thing is, is that they're rich. You know, to be mayor, 24 years old, you live in the district that you're running, you're a registered voter. Those are the qualifications. That's why when people are trying to say, hey, are you qualified? Many people are qualified, but what it takes to run a city, I'm willing to be there at every step to make sure that I don't make the same mistakes that I've seen our past couple mayors do. And I also want to be inclusive and intentional. But my life experiences to me are something that's a value added that I bring in a way that many other candidates don't. I think that when candidates start to run for office, the first thing is that I can do it better. I want to take that eye out of that and make sure that the team, that the administration is inclusive of our immigrant and international population, as well as our poor black, brown and white people who I've seen the 90% of us who struggle, who are trying to move from surviving to thriving. How, what are those things? What are they dealing with? They're dealing with 
jobs, not having jobs that pay livable wages. They're dealing with, um, and I've dealt with that as well as homelessness. They're dealing with dealing with their family and trying to make sure their family get treatment or get the services that they need. They're dealing with food, food deserts and, and being able to access food. They're dealing with criminal justice reform on every end. They're impacted by incarceration. They're impacted by all the things that feed into poverty. That poverty is 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 also the biggest the biggest culprit that we all have. And so for me, although a lot of my work is centered around um, ending racist practices, it's also related to ending poverty and dealing with poverty head on. And, and for me, I feel like poverty is something that's tangible, something that you and I and Jasmine can walk out of our doors and do something about. We can impact somebody's lives by just going to them and meeting them where they are. So I think what makes me unique is that I've lived it I've done it. I will never forget what it took to get there. And I'm not running from that. People keep saying, well, she's just an activist. An activist is someone who takes action to on the things that they believe in. I'm not running from that I'm an activist, but I'm also an advocate. Teachers call on me to talk to the not just the current superintendent, but the past three superintendents, state legislators, lawmakers, as well as um, doctors and lawyers and, and professors at universities. I'm that person that they call for community outreach to build a relationship, to fundraise, to do development work. I said I sit on seven boards where I just got off of those boards and I've been appointed as commissioner and civil service commissioner. I'm that person that they call. I'm not new to politics. I'm not new to serving my community. I'm just trying to do it in a bigger way. And I'm trying to bring a voice that has never been at the executive level. Not saying that you got to be poor or you had to be homeless to know what it takes to lead our city in the next 24 to 20 years. I'm saying that what we've had before have been able, those people are connected. The Me being mayor is not going to change Derby or, or Whiskey Row. It's going to bring more ideas. It's going to bring more business makers. It's going to bring more people here who haven't been at the table. We, our city is in dire, dire need of real change and real hope. And I'm, I told a group of Democratic folks, I'm the last hope for our Democratic Party. I'm a different kind of Democrat, but people have lost faith in our party because consistently it does not get behind really good people. And when it comes to union, I've been a union worker, a dues-paying union worker. I've supported unions. I will continue to support and make sure that we have union labor first, that we have community agreements whenever a business wants to come into a community. I can do that in a way nobody else can because I don't have the steering wheel in my back. All I have is the will of the people. Yeah, that's a very good answer. Uh, yeah, and, and and you know I, that is kind of interesting. I, I'm sure a lot of people say, you know, what does it look like when somebody you like you gets elected and we have Derby or want to go in Whiskey Row? Is that like something you hear a lot of people talk about? Like, you know, they think you're just going to fundamentally, you know, just up and change everything. They act like that I'm not a business owner, that I haven't built a business from scratch, that I don't know that, you know, to run a city is is like running a business. You have to have revenue. You have to have things coming in. The problem is, is that there's so much focus on downtown that a lot of other communities, we have 80 other communities, 80 other cities, small cities, 22 of them have women mayors, but you don't hear from them. I want to, I want to use, uh, that's why I'm using this campaign to push them to spend their ARP funding right so that when my administration gets in they don't blame us for what didn't work because we've seen that happen again and again 
for the last 20 years, we focused on bridges. Now that we have the bridges, where is our mass transit? Where is light rail? Where are things that can help connect our communities? Where are our improvements that you and I can feel as we walk into our doors? I think the past administration has not had to worry about that in a way. And so you need a leader that's focused on the needs of the people. We don't have a people's candidate. A people's candidate, if you don't have somebody like me in the race, you don't get the real changes that we've been seeking, not just in the last year, but many years before. So I think, yeah, it's true that we definitely want to make sure there's a business sense. They'll be, I'll have make I'll make sure that that's diverse. The deputy mayor does not have to be my best friend. They can be an adversary as long as they're focused on moving the city forward. I want to appoint people who are really going to take action, who are who are about making sure that we have a real commitment to this city. And I've been on all sides of it. I've been appointed by the mayor before to the human relations commission. I've been in all these positions, so I I've, I've seen what's been missing. But no one mayor does it by themselves, Robert. No one mayor does it. It's in partnership. It's in partnership with business, with all the other groups and organizations. It's in partnership with the people of Louisville. Yeah, so that's a great vision. Uh, but, but you know, being mayor also includes a lot of, like, tactile, actually writing numbers down and that kind of stuff. And I am kind of interested, you know, one of the things that the mayor has to do every single year is to come up with a budget. And they submit that to the council, and that gets edited. So, you know, if you were the mayor, if you if you walk into the budget year 2022, um, tell us a little bit about how you would go about doing that. What would you do? Uh, how would you assemble a team? Um, what are the types of priorities that you would want to look at in in writing your budget for the next fiscal year? I'm already doing it. Um, one of the things I plan to present is a proposed budget, a people, a, a proposed budget that is people centered, that is about the improvements that we've all been asking for and talking about. So what I've been doing is talking to people in different areas, people who've worked in parks and recreation, people who who work um, in infrastructure, people who work for TARC, people who work for the police, people who are a part of health and equity. So make sure that I'm listening to all these different voices and that they're offering input. So what I've been doing is sending my ideas of, of how I would spend funding, how I would reallocate funding to them. And they're letting me know this makes sense. This might be better if we move this money over this way. Because when I I'm not running on you know, hey, I just want to shut everything down. I don't. I want to get in and I want to assess everything that's working and the things that aren't working. I want to change that. I want to eliminate some cushing positions where folks are basically have gotten in there. They've gotten grandfathered in or it's nepotism. And really, at the end of the day, they're not making a real difference in the everyday lives of Louisvillians. We need to take their salaries and split them up so that people who actually work for Louisville Metro government get the services and the support that they need. They have EAP. They have opportunities to get therapy and the things they need to be able to serve a city that's dealt with so much civil unrest and trauma. So what I'm doing is bringing those people to the table now. Some of them I can be public with, but some of them, because they currently work for the administration, they have to be careful on how they answer those questions. I know it's about making sure that I have a budget and making sure that I uh, I'm also supported by the council to get that budget passed. I've been watching all the budget meetings. I've been attending them. I've been reading about, um, looking at other cities that are similar to Louisville. Because, you know, Louisville has it's its own beast in many ways. But looking at different cities to see what's working, what's changed, if they reallocated funding from the police to make sure there were um, trauma um, responses and therapists and professionals and what other after-school programs that could we offset. Even though JCPS has a bigger separate budget, 
there's still things that we can do to add to that. And then I got a question recently. What about why wouldn't we, wouldn't we separate the budget out? What if the police budget was totally separated so that we can really focus on what funding we have and how we can allocate that to issues and programs and, and things that are really working? And then all about people proving there's a lot of groups who are doing really good work with smaller numbers, but the work is very impactful. Those groups don't usually get funding. Why don't we have the administrative services that they need supplied so that they can grow in capacity? Are we looking at these groups? Are we only, I'm tired of doing the same old thing over and over again. So you're right. I had to start from ground zero, but I'm building that. And so by the time the spring comes, I'll present what, I'll be able to show what the current budget is and what the budget I propose during my administration is. So you already mentioned the police budget a little bit, but I want to kind of talk about public safety a little bit more because that is going to be one of the issues driving the 2022 race for mayor. And, you know, in the past discussions of safety and policing um, have often centered the voices of the people who are impacted the least by um, the increase in the number of like homicides in the city and people who have fewer interactions with police. But, you know, as a person who led protests regarding the police in 2020, you know, what what is your vision for the future of public safety in Louisville? That we all get a part. We all have a part to say. I want to have our young people, since they're always the center of those conversations, to be leaders in the solutions. So I want them to have real teeth in, in the decision making so they will not only be at the table I don't want them just for show. I want to make sure that they're engaged in the racial equity plans, that they are a part of the decision-making process. So I want young people from 16 to 30 to be intentionally represented on, on, on my accountability team, also making sure that they are making the decision on what they want. I'm tired of people telling me, here's what the youth need. Why don't we have the youth at the table to help decide that in a real way, not in a paperwork way, but in a real way. So what when, when I hear people say to me, well, you know, it's about putting numbers on a paper. It's true. But if you look at all the previous administrations, they say one thing on paper and then one thing plays out in, in, in reality. I'm trying to change that. I want, I've always asked when I was in the West End, I live in Shively now where we bought a house. But when I lived in the West End, my kids saw that balance every day. My And so when we come out of our doors, we saw that, hey, our, nobody came on our street to talk to us. Sometimes our streets didn't even receive the basic services of being snow plowed. We knew that we were a neglected street, a neglected community. I want to change that. And I want to make sure that I'm doing that in a real way. And it's not just the West End that is missing out. It's places in the South End. It's places out East that are missing out on getting the support that they need. So the way that you survive gun violence and 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 trauma is through a series of successful transitions. So whether that person goes to therapy, whether you go through therapy, whether you go through programming, I wouldn't be here today and I wouldn't have survived gun violence if I didn't have programming, if I didn't have faith communities, if I didn't have people who invested in me to be where I am at today. I want to make sure that, that those things are multiplied. We have over 102 pastors who went through a program that was initiated in 2016 as a part of our police reforms, but they never got a call. After 
after they finished that program, that's it. Nobody heard from them. They haven't been leaders in any of the changes that we that have been proposed. I just see too many failed plans. So I'm making sure that anything that we draw up is intentional. It's going to have the people leading there. It's going to have checks and balances. And it's going to have incentives for people who are meeting those guidelines and meeting those needs. Now, the protest part was for me as a mother of six, as a black mother of six and having daughters who are in their 20s, who are out, who are going to be out there in those streets. For the first time in my life, I was in a good position to use every resource I got to make sure that we held a base so that people can express themselves and also hold this issue right at the core of our city, because that's exactly where it belonged. But doing that, was also to protect our city. We also fed into the businesses. So we use mutual aid. We, we use direct aid to feed into all of those businesses. So for people to think that because I've come from an activist realm that I'm not thinking about business and growth and our city, is it, that's a false narrative. Everything that I've done has been to make sure, one, we take care of the people first, and two, we take care of whatever is around us. Never um, condoning any violence or any destruction or anything like that. But also understanding that we have failed our young Young people, we have failed people over and over again, and that the police have a large part to play in the gun balance and the things that we've seen. And so now, yes, there's gun initiatives. I want to do real buyback initiatives, not with any like $25 gift card because guns have such a high resale value. But whatever we do, whether it's a gun buyback, whether it's legalization, whatever it is, it has to come with decriminalization. We have people who get a charge and it stays with them for the rest of their life and it's hard for them to navigate. And that plays back into recidivism, them coming back in the community, them feeling hopeless, and then crime happening. I want the police to get back to and to be able to investigate, to do what we hired them to be. Right now, they are at the executive level and they are a part of the major decision making that we don't even have the, the young people or citizens who are actively a part of our communities. We don't even have them at that level. So first, we need to make sure. They already told us they don't have everything needed to solve all of our issues. We've been giving them all our problems. So we need to create other avenues. And that's what I talk about with reallocation, other avenues that are funded and supported by the police as well. The police should be training young people to be their first line of defense in their community. They should be taking them through training and hiring them so that they can be that first level of defense. And when we need the police, we call the police in, but we don't even know that we have those options. So should this be a trauma response or should this be a police that shows up to a given situation? I've seen it even not just at Injustice Square, but in the California, Victory Park, Russell communities, those are people who are seasoned, people who are connected to that community. They're offering protection in their very own community. It's just not supported because we have just only depended on the police. So yes, the police has to be willing to give up some funding. I was just on a call with Chief Shields yesterday and mentioned this to her and she said that they would be supportive of that. I said, you all can't hold all the funding, not let us take some power and initiative to get things done. And then when we when you need things done, you come to our same old black churches and say, help us stop the violence. That those kind of narratives don't work anymore, and we cannot continue to play into that. So I want everyone to have an active role and to bring in the public safety, the the needs that we need for our community. But we get a buy-in, and I also have initiative light up the alleyways where people want them using solar power, motion sensors to light up those alleyways because that's where a lot of crime happens. Light deters crime. But when those people see that you care about your alley, I, we they used to put hypodermic needles in when we lived at Hemlock and Southern in our brick pillars. 
me and my nephew cleaned them out. We replaced them with flowers. Sometimes they took the flowers, but they stopped putting those needles back in there. If you show people that you care about every corner of this city, you will see a huge difference. The problem is we say it on paper. We say it in news and press releases and, and, and on the TV. But the reality is that those things don't trickle down to the groups that are really doing the real good work, even if it's 25 to 50 kids a year. If they're successfully getting those kids into into programming, into college, then those are the things we want to we want to spread. We want to give those them the funding that they need to be able to do it. And most of these groups just don't have the finance, the, the administrative capacity. They just don't have a good CPA or a good accountant to make them make sure that their paper is paperwork is good. That's it. They're doing the work. So what I want to do is spread up, break up some of this money, spread it out throughout the county and show that we have a real investment across the city. Right now, that's not what it looks like. And until we change that, we're going to see that concentrated poverty in the in the way. And, and no, TIFF is not is what's going to get us there. TIF is a 20 minute, 20 year implementation of getting to that. I'm talking about direct, tangible things we can do year one, year two, year three, and year four. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a very, I mean, uh, that's a that's a good answer. It's a long answer, but it's an important issue. And of course, uh, very good to hear your perspective on that as well. Uh, the other issue we wanted to talk about was economic development. So you talked a little bit about the business community. You've talked a little bit about, you know, um, your your conversations with with the business community, but but the word development is a word that that is pretty loaded for a lot of people. Uh, you know, it, it means a lot of different things. Some people love it. Some people are, are are very afraid when they hear it. Um, so I would like to hear your perspective on development. What is the type of development you would like to see in Louisville, and what type of development would you maybe not like to see in Louisville? A good. That's a great question, and I do get that question a lot. And as somebody that was a development associate. I understand how loaded it can be. But when I did development, it was about um, increasing grassroots fundraising. But I know when we hear development, we're talking about um, project design. We're talking about developers. We are a developer strong city. There's no running from that. And I've said in the in the last meeting I was just at with, with Craig Greenberg, there's no reason why Craig Greenberg can't be a developer and I can still be mayor there. You know, uh, your mayor doesn't have to be a developer. Your mayor doesn't have to be a preacher. There's no reason why Pastor Finley couldn't work on faith based initiatives to bring more people and get them more involved in what I'm talking about. A mayor will help appoint and bring all those people together to drive our city forward. So I want more concerts and more activities. You know, places like the Yum Center end up being more of a financial drain if we don't get the right kind of community and people engaged and involved to feel like, hey, I can use the Yum Center to bring in more revenue. Um, people have talked about us having a sports team. You know, we're a high school and college town. What are what are those things like? How can we continue to support our soccer team and the things that are happening there? How can we get more attendance to more events? Um, and I think having a, a new first black mayor in the in the gateway to the South would be phenomenal for people wanting to come in and bring their annual um, parties or annual um, conventions and things like that. I see all of that continue to increase because I saw people still coming even during the civil unrest, even when downtown was was supposed to be closed down. People, I met people from France, from Africa, from all over this nation and the world coming in to see People will all, if you, you know, that build it and they will come is a very true thing. But if you build and we really run 
stand on the compassion that we like to brag about and show that we have turned our city around, that we have new leadership that is listening, that is bringing the missing voices, that is making those decisions, you will see that multiply. But also, even during this campaign, even though before I filed, I was running, we 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 helped um, over 23 new entrepreneurs start their businesses and organizations. We did that on our own. We didn't do no big press um, release on it. We got together with some Black and minority business owners, and they said, look, here's how we want to give back. We weren't down there for the civil unrest, but we want to help some of those people start their businesses, start their organizations. So guess what? We met up at Southern Hospitality. We had an event. We had a CPA there. She got their paperwork started, and now you have 30 new business groups. No, I'm not making the front page of the Urban League newsletter for that, but I'm also showing that if we, there's people that we're not connecting to, and none of those other groups are connecting to too. So I think that having someone that has been accessible to the community, having an administration that's accessible will offer more opportunity for people, our immigrant, our international communities, all those communities to be a part of what's moving forward. And I think that that brings a natural increase in revenue. I, I, I think we should expand, you know, the bike trail. We should expand the waterfront to go all the way actually to the end of Broadway or the end to where Shawnee Park is. There's a bridge there that we can open up that was a walking bridge before in the Portland community. I'm talking to my people who work on infrastructure and they said, Shamika, the way our gas stations are placed, we're all and the way that the um, airport is built, we're already set up for light rail. Well, why, why aren't we working on it? And then at every stop? What if you had a farmer's market or a, a market at every stop or every other stop where people can park and choose? The problem is, is that you don't have many options if you don't drive. And so what we need to do is create more walkable options, reduce some of this, the parking and make sure that we, we reduce, reuse and recycle and repurpose all of these abandoned spaces. If we do that, I'm from Cincinnati. I'm from over the Rhine. I've seen us come back from civil unrest. I've seen gentrification. People want something new. Let's be clear. People want something shiny and new in their neighborhood. They just want to know that they have a, 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 a buy-in or a way to benefit or a way to appreciate it or even know what the decisions are being made. We can't keep making things over people. We have to deal with the people or the structures that we're building over them will crumble. If we continue going the way we have, those, those things are going to continue to fall down. You have all these buildings now that we've shown that working from home, because COVID was our biggest culprit last year, let's be real. But we've shown through COVID that we're capable of working from home, or doing all this work. So then what happens to the buildings? How can those buildings be repurposed and reused so that we're bringing more people? And we need more 24-hour spots. Our nightlife sucks. Our nightlife sucks. We need we need more 24-hour community centers. Not all the community centers have to be 24 hours, but some of them. And then after 9 o'clock, they turn into a respite center. So if I'm having a bad night and I'm arguing with my family, I can be dropped off like the living room was. So supporting those kind of initiatives help make everybody thrive. And then also having options. We won't end homelessness, but we can reduce it if we offer transition to that. If we offer like, okay, if you want to get this house, first you got to deal with your mental health, then you need, might need a case manager. We have money to do those things. And we never let a pool close. We don't lay off police officers. We don't lay off librarians. We don't lay off, we don't close community centers. If we keep those initiatives first, then our young people will feel like, I don't just have to do brain drain, get my education and leave here. We want to give them something to come back to, something to want to stay for. I have a lot of those plans and initiatives ready to roll out. Now, as a candidate, 
If I give it all away now, they're going to steal it and do like Elizabeth Warren and run somebody against me. So I have to be careful on how I answer this, but I'm definitely willing to be at the table and help get us to a better place. Whether I win or lose, I'm committed to changing the city. Yeah, it sounds like you have a lot of good ideas already. Um, Before we let you go, we've got to talk about money a little bit. So while you were the first candidate to declare your candidacy, uh, you are trailing in the money race. And, you know, you made statements throughout the campaign that you're hitting fundraising targets. And, you know, I think everyone, at least our listeners, you know, we would all agree that money plays an outsized role in politics. But what is your campaign strategy when going up against other campaigns that do have much larger bank accounts. Understood. And you know, the whole point of me announcing early was to change the game. And I already have. They don't want to give me credit for that. None of these other candidates would have filed or would have even announced their intentions. They're used to backroom dealings and making these secret deals. I'm straightforward. I'm transparent. And what you see is what you get. I'm also a fundraiser. I've raised hundreds of thousands of dollars right here in this city. I raise them for other projects and other candidates and campaigns. I didn't raise it for myself. So I had to create and get a team that is helping me fundraise. And I do that. I've hired finance people to help me up the fundraising. But I will tell you, millionaires and high raising campaigns lose elections every cycle. That is not a guarantee that they're going to win. I think right now, anybody that's running for office now, we're in a whole different space where we're activating and motivating people power like never before. I got people who are registered, uh, 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 I was going to say registered immigrants, but (laughs) registered independents who are changing their status to be able to vote for me in the primary. I'm working on bases that nobody talks to because they're not fidelity voters. I'm I'm trying to activate that people power, but yes, it does take money. This is a grassroots campaign and the people who are working on my team are committed to seeing it through. And yes, I am making sure they get paid. Everybody makes the the same $25 an hour rate because we want to be we want to honor livable wage and we want to make sure we're treating people equally. We will raise the money to win. That's what's important to know. It should not take $1 million to win a mayoral race, but it will take the money, the energy, the time, the resources from a bunch of people who are empowered by this people power grassroots campaign. If I change this, when I win, that changes the whole politics for our Kentucky. And I cannot tell you that one of my goals is to reduce some of the money that is in politics because you should not be able to buy a seat. You should be able to win a seat by winning over voters. But I do know because I do know money and I deal with like I've had a lot of money to deal with with all the work that I'm doing. I know that it's important to raise it because that's when people think they you got a real fight in the game. But I started early because I knew I would have the, the biggest climb for that. So my goal is to continue to do that, to get some outside um, entities involved in knowing that how powerful and significant it is to have a black woman running and the gateway to the South to run to change this city. But a black woman that is connected, that is proven to be a bridge builder that brings white, black, other people together all the time, poor, across all kinds of lines of difference. I'm going to continue to multiply that power to raise the money to win this race. On my website, you see, I would love for us to raise a million dollars. But if we raise 500,000, if we raise 
$350,000 to win. Jasmine, you know that changes our whole city. That changes our whole state. And that is what I'm focused on. And guess what? I have way more people who are giving $5 and $10 a month who are pledging to this campaign on a monthly basis, even though they're poor. They're saying, look, I believe in this campaign. My job is to continue to expand. I have a real base. I don't just have a fan club. I have a base of people who've, who've worked with me over the years, who people we've connected to through all these different entities who know that I mean everything that I say, that I'm going to bring their missing voices to the executive level. But yes, we have ramped our game up. The fouling, getting to fouling day was one level of the game. Now we're on the next level. So just as I said on, on, on September 23rd, that we're in the next level of our protest, we're in the next level of our campaign. So now start using this time to bring more monies in to show that this is a viable campaign. But the most important thing, and I don't want anybody to ever confuse this, the most important thing is the votes. Getting through primary with the most votes is the is the goal. And so that is the primary thing that we're focused on, reaching into pockets, into people who have lost faith in our, in our voting process, who have lost faith in democracy, encouraging them to vote. I have young white students, young white kids, brown kids, Asian Pacific Islander, who are telling me, your campaign gives me hope. Your campaign makes me want to stay in this city. I was ready to be done after what happened to Brianna Taylor. I want to stay here. I want to see you win. So if I can continue to multiply that energy and get that done, a lot of my donors come from 40206, 40205. They come from all over, even some out of state and out of town. So what we're going to do is continue to, to increase the momentum. I won't lie to you all. It's been a job trying to keep this momentum going since last January. So, but we're in the next level of this campaign and we will raise the money to win. Very good. All right. Well, last before we let you go, I mean, if people have heard this and are interested in learning more or, or they're already bought in and want to make a donation, how can they find more about you? How can they stay connected? Thank you. It's shamikaparishwright.com. So since we're on the radio, S-H-A-M-E-K-A. P-A-R-R-I-S-H-W-R-I-G-H-T dot com. And I thank you all for even sharing this platform and letting me talk to the people because this is important. And we're doing every form of organizing. I'm not just online. Even though we've raised almost $20,000 just being doing our work online, I'm also knocking on doors. I'm also talking, having house parties, even two hot dogs and a, and, a, and a Coke. We are meeting up with good people, good voters, people in Jefferson County, Anybody in this county can vote in this race. So I'm trying to meet all of them where they are and talk to them. And I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not negative for the business community. I'm for our whole community, our whole city to move forward together. So if you want to get involved, there's space for you. Bring your resources, bring your talents, bring your skills. You're welcome to join Team Shamika. All right. Thank you very much. We really appreciate you coming on and talking to us. I appreciate you both. Thank you. Jasmine, how can people get a hold of us? They can find us on Twitter and Instagram at my old KY pod. They can like our Facebook page and listen to our podcast on the podcast app of their choice. We also have a newsletter that comes out on Fridays. You can subscribe to it at tinyletter.com slash my old Kentucky newsletter. We also have a Patreon page where you can support what we're doing for as little as a dollar a month. You can do that at patreon.com slash my old Kentucky podcast. And last but not least, we are part of the Dimcast Network. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next week.